Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Craig Kelberg. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. And I learned how to read just for this episode. (laughs) Which we all very much appreciate. I do, I thank you for taking the time. So could you, um... Let our listeners know, because I'm, I'm sure most people aren't familiar, uh, what method did you use for learning how to read so quickly? Uh, hooked on phonics. It so, worked for me. Did it really? Yeah, it worked great. See, I always found it difficult, hooked on phonics, because um, it's really good at helping you sound things out, but how did how did it deal with the letters that make sounds that don't make phonetic sense, like when P sounds like an F? Um, I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> all right. All Today right. may be rough. <laughs> Follow-up question. How do you spell phonics? <laughs> um, I, it, it, with a picture? Got it. You learned how to read, not to write. <laughs> um, oh, and we're off to a banging start. Uh, so, regular listeners, you will notice that uh, the voices sound strange today. Um, that's because there are two men behind the microphone, which has not yet happened in the history of in the history of uh, Campfire Classics. We're making history today. We're making history right here as we speak. Uh, Craig is my brother, and he lives here in Asheville, and uh, has kindly agreed to step in while Heather is somewhere in warm climates, island hopping. And I actually just saw a picture of her picture of her holding a pregnant sloth named Charlie. So she's having a real good time. That sounds awesome. Right. She could be here, but instead she's playing with sloths, pregnant sloths, pregnant sloths. You think they're slower when they're pregnant? At least probably moodier. I wonder what a cranky sloth is like. Uh, so Craig, tell the listeners everything they need to know about you. Um, born October 17th, 1988. Okay. If we're going that far (laughs) back, I'm going to need a drink. And you have one. Um, I live here in Asheville, North Carolina. I've lived here about seven years. Uh, I play musical instruments. Uh, I am a new dad. That's exciting. That is exciting. You... If, if she's really loud, you may hear my daughter screaming in the background at some point. She is downstairs right now. Um, uh, our mom is watching her. Yeah. So, important question. Did your wife turn into a sloth when she was pregnant? She did not. Oh, all right. I was surprised. So that doesn't pan out. No. She is not an anamorph. <laughs> Which is really a shame. Yeah. Um, dear listeners, for those of you who are unfamiliar, Animorphs is a book series that... Uh, well, I'm just, I'm really excited for them to fall into public domain so we can start reading them on this podcast. That'd be good. That'd be good. I think we've got a little ways until then, though. Maybe another, what, 70 years? Something like that. 60, 70 years. Yeah. They were coming out in the 80s and 90s. 80s, even? Was it that far back? I was thinking, like, did they start in the 90s? 90s? Yeah. All right. I don't know. 
I remember they were they were always in those um, the Scholastic Book Club yep. um, magazines. I think an anamorph that turned into a sloth would be awesome. Right? It'd be great. Yeah. In what adventure would the superpower of a sloth be most useful, do you think? If you're trying to get past some sort of, like, motion sensor camera? Oh. Yeah, you think they could move so slowly that the lasers wouldn't recognize that there's something moving? That's what I'm thinking, yeah. Or, like, do they have lower body heat? I know their metabolism is really low. I'm not a sloth expert. This is more than I've talked about sloths possibly ever. So welcome to Campfire Classics, an Animorphs fan cast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So for first time listeners, and if we're doing our job right, every episode is somebody's first episode. And I suppose for Craig, who I know has listened to a couple episodes, but maybe a little hairy on the details. What we do here at Campfire Classics is read stories from classic literature. We choose stories that are in public domain because being sued by writers and their estates is a really bad way to run a business Mm -hmm. and we cold read them which means this week i have chosen a story for craig to read that he has never seen and i'll wager never heard of before seems likely uh and since he has only just learned how to read it will be really exciting to see how hooked on phonics has worked for him if this goes well this could be their new advertising campaign yeah hooked on phonics if you're looking for for a podcast to sponsor (laughs) on phonics if you're listening and i'm not entirely convinced you're still in business um reach out (laughs) let us know uh but before we get to the story i have a few fun facts that i want to share to give a little um historical context to the story craig will be reading today so this week i'm handing my brother a brand new author to the show not brand new in life but brand new to the show Born in Minneapolis, Minnesota, hey, yeah, yeah, in September of 1884, Gertrude Barrows Bennett was a sci-fi and fantasy writer credited as the woman who invented dark fantasy. Really? Yep. That's fantastic. Right? Say the name again. Gertrude Barrows Bennett. Gertrude Barrows Bennett. That's a great name. Um, so her birth name was Gertrude Mabel Barrows. It could be Barrows. It's an A. I don't know if it's A or A or A, whatever. Um, her father was a Civil War veteran from Illinois. Gertrude completed school through the eighth grade, then attended night school in hopes of becoming an illustrator. Huh. She never got her dream job and instead became a stenographer, a job that she held off and on for the rest of her life. That's the people that, like, type what you say, right? Uh, Yes, uh, except that this predated the typewriter. She just wrote what she said. So, well, so stenographers use shorthand, and that's what the courtroom stenographers, the reason they always look like they're faking it in in TV shows Mm -hmm. and, like, they don't know how to type because they're just mashing their hands up and down Mm -hmm. is because those are special shorthand typewriters that you punch, like, three or four different um, keys at a time, and it it gives you a letter combination that is shorthand for a word. So in a TV show, when it looks like they don't know what they're doing, it's because they actually really know what they're doing. Yeah, it's because they're actually faking it really, really well. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, but yeah, so she became a, a stenographer, so she took shorthand notes for people who were cool. speaking. Uh, she wrote her first short story at age 17, a science fiction story titled The Curious Experience of Thomas Dunbar. She mailed the story to Argosy, which is one of the pulp magazines that we've actually 
talked about quite a bit in this podcast. Uh, and the story was accepted and published in the March 1904 issue under the name G.M. Barrows. Although the initials were used disguising her gender, this appears to be the first instance of an American female author publishing science fiction using her real name. That's awesome. That's that's pretty cool. Right? Yeah. What a badass. Uh, the same month, the Youth's Companion magazine published some of her poetry. Nice. Five years later, in 1909, Barrows married Stuart Bennett, a British journalist and explorer, and they moved to Philadelphia. A year later, her husband died during a tropical <laughs> storm while on a treasure hunting expedition. <laughs> short-lived. <laughs> However, they were together just long enough for her to have a baby. Of course. Yep. A year. That's so <laughs> with a newborn daughter to raise, Bennett continued working as a stenographer. Toward the end of World War I, she assumed care for her invalid mother, who was now alone. Weirdly, accounts of Bennett's father's death vary wildly. He may have died during World War I, but it's also possible that he died as early as 1892 when Gertrude was only eight. There seems to be disputes. That is a massive amount. How? The historical There's evidence like, is confused. They're not sure. Some people are like, no, he died in the 1890s. And some people are like, no, nah, it was towards the end of World War One." So there's like almost 30 years of like, mm. <laughs> maybe it was alive, maybe he wasn't. However, this confusion is kind of a family trait. And you'll see what I mean later. Uh, Gertrude appears to have done almost all of her writing, with the exception of that first story, between the years of 1917 and 1920. She was writing to support her daughter and her mother, getting mm -hmm. them published in magazines and, and whatnot. And she stopped writing in 1920 when her mother died huh. because she no longer had her mother to take care of. Uh, so anything published much after 1920 was had been previously written but just went unpublished. In those three years... She published five novels and a bunch of short stories. Most of them were released in pulps and similar serialized magazines, uh, often using the name Frances Stevens. Huh. Her right. writing had a noticeable influence on some of the darker sci-fi and fantasy authors to follow her, like A. Merritt and H.P. Lovecraft. One critic said she was the greatest and most important woman's voice in science fiction since Mary Shelley. Damn. Because Bennett was the first American woman to have uh, her fantasy and science fiction widely published, she is considered a pioneering fantasy author. In the mid-1920s, Bennett placed her daughter in the care of friends and moved to California. She was estranged for her, from her daughter, and because of that, for several years, researchers believed that Gertrude died in 1939. However, that is not true. <laughs> It turns out that she didn't die until 1948. Jesus. <laughs> Runs in the family? Runs in the family. That's weird. Being confused about death. Yeah. Anyway, this week you'll be reading a short story by her, first published in All Story Weekly in 1918, called Behind the Curtain. Ooh. Let's get this fire started. Behind the Curtain by Francis Stevens, a.k.a. Gertrude Barrows, Barrows, Bennett. 
I guess she did borrow Bennett. Ooh. Ah. <laughs> nice. Except that then she kept it. But in fairness, it was just because Bennett died. So she kept Bennett. Yeah. He didn't need it back anymore. But she she might not have kept the name. She stopped writing after 1920. I think her death certificate still had her Gertrude okay. Barrows Barrows Bennett. Changing her name was probably more problematic then. Yeah, well, and you know, throughout a lot of history, you had a lot more um, uh, cachet as a widow than as either a single woman or a married woman. Right. Suddenly you had a little bit of authority. You were there taking care of your estate and blah, blah, blah. Right. That makes sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense, but it makes sense. Right. <clears throat> it was nine o'clock when the bell rang. And descending the dimly lighted hall, I opened the front door. At first on the chain to be sure of my visitor. At first on the chain, as in kept the, the chain lock. Oh, got it. Right. Open the door so that with the chain Open lock. it, look out to see mm -hmm. who it is. Okay, hang on, close the door, undo the chain yep. so you can open it all the way. Okay. Of course, those don't really work. If you kick hard enough, you can break them loose. Well, maybe the chains were stronger in 19... 1918? 18, yes. Yeah. At first on the chain, at first on the chain, to be sure of my visitor. Seeing, as I had hoped, the face of our friend, Ralph Quentin, I took off the chain, and he entered with a blast of sharp November air for company. I had to throw my weight upon the door to close it against the wind. That is a powerful wind. Yeah. As he removed his hat and cloak, he laughed good-humoredly. You're very cautious, Santalos. I thought you were about to demand a password before admitting me. Swordfish. Right? It's always swordfish. Always swordfish. It is well to be cautious, I retorted. This house stands somewhat alone, and thieves are everywhere. Uh-oh. This guy's super suspicious. Right? <clears throat> it would require a thief of considerable muscle to make off with some of your treasures. That's... <laughs> <laughs> that stone tomb thing, for instance. <laughs> She's got a tomb in her house. All right. It would require a thief of considerable muscle to make off with some of your treasures. That stone tomb thing, for instance. What do you call it? <laughs> That's it. A stone tomb thing. <laughs> Don't you have one? Right. Everyone's got one. I've got three. Uh, the, the Benny Hassan sarcophagus? Benny Hassan? Benny Haas, I assume a name. Right, okay. Possibly the, the person who discovered it. Hang on, I'll see if this is a real name. Ah, not a person. An ancient Egyptian cemetery, so probably Benny Hassan. Yep. Yeah, it's it's Benny an archaeological Hassan. site and uh, ancient Egyptian cemetery. Right, because her husband was a treasure hunter. That stone tomb thing, for instance. What do, you, what do you call it? The Beni Hassan sarcophagus. Yes, but what of the gilded inner case? And what of the woman it contains? A thief of judgment and intelligence might covet that treasure and strive to deprive me of it. Don't you agree? You still got a body in the sarcophagus, dude? <laughs> Different times, I guess. <laughs> he only laughed again and counterfeited a shudder. 
The woman, don't remind me that such a brown, shriveled, mummy horror was ever a woman. <laughs> Creepy-ass corpse, don't remind me that was a person. <laughs> but she was. Doubtless in her day, my poor princess of Narn... Narn... Was soft... Narn? Narn? How did Hooked on Phonics prepare for that one? <laughs> Not well. <laughs> doubtless in her day, my poor princess of Narn was soft, appealing... A creature of red, moist lips, and eyes like stars in the black Egyptian night. Ooh, wow. She was a hottie back before she was a prune. Right. The songstress of the house, she was called. Ere she became the Tanazim, the Osirian. Osirian? Uh, um, probably a... Osiris. Osiris, a priest or something dedicated to Osiris. But I keep you standing here in the cold hall. Come upstairs with me. Did I tell you that Beatrice is not here tonight? No. His intonation expressed surprised and frank disappointment. Then I can't say goodbye to her. Didn't you receive my note? I'm to take Sanderson's place as manager of the sales department in Chicago, and I'm off tomorrow morning. Congratulations. Yes, we had, we had your note. But Beatrice was given an opportunity to join some friends on a southern trip. The notice was short, but of late she has not been so well, and I urged her to go. This November air is cruelly damp and bitter. I like that once upon a time, the thought process was like, I'm sick, I have to go on a vacation. (laughs) (laughs) Send me to the Bahamas. That'd be great. I'm going to the Caribbean. No, it's it's my prescription cruise. What was it? A yachting cruise? (laughs) A long cruise. She left this afternoon. I have been sitting in her boudoir, Quentin, thinking of her. Addressing Quentin, not not referring to her boudoir as Quentin. (laughs) I've been sitting in her boudoir, Quentin. She named it after you. I've been sitting in her boudoir, Quentin, thinking of her, and I'll tell you about it there, if you don't mind. Wherever you like, he conceded. Come with me to my wife's (laughs) bedroom, where I've been thinking about her all day. (laughs) No, it's cool. She's on a cruise. Wink, wink. Right? (laughs) Grab the bottle. So, I understand in the context here, like, because they don't have, like, any of the dialogue end with Quentin said, I said, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes sense to put his name in there to just give you a frame of reference. Yes. But it's always been awkward to me when people's names are just, like, inserted into the middle of a sentence to, like, address them. What are you talking about, Craig? That is a very natural way for people to converse. Yeah, yeah it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just strange. People don't talk like that, in my experience. I, I don't talk like I that. I don't use people's names very yeah. often. <clears throat> I says, you should go on a cruise. I should go on a cruise. <laughs> <laughs> the Bahamas. All right. I suppose he had not credited me with so much... Al- I'm going to go back a little bit. Roll back. Yeah. Uh, come with me to my wife's bedroom. Winky, winky, grab the whiskey. Wherever you like, he conceded, though in a tone of some surprise... I suppose he had not credited me with so much sentiment, or thought it odd that I should wish to share it with another, even so good a friend as he. 
You must find it fearfully lonesome here without B, he continued. That's why I'm inviting you into the bedroom. <laughs> Quentin. It's not accidental that I'm using your name. Quentin. A trifle. We were ascending the dark stairs now. The dark stairs. <laughs> I don't think she's known for writing homoerotic romance, but on the off chance, let's remember there's also a dead woman in the house. Right. <sighs> How long does a corpse have to be dead for it to become um, art and valuable and not creepy? Um, I don't think there is such a time. <laughs> <laughs> for me. Fair enough. But, like, you've been to museums. You've been to the Egyptology department. You've seen a mummy. And I think it's weird. Okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> On a similar note. If you were at a swimming pool mm -hmm. and there was a dead body in it, you'd mm -hmm. get out of the pool. I know where this is going. However, you'll go in the ocean knowing that there are dead bodies in the ocean. Uh -huh. Which means there is a ratio yeah. of water to dead body that we as people are comfortable with. Absolutely. What do you think that ratio is? Ten to one. So it doesn't even have to be a very big <laughs> pool for you to be cool with swimming with a dead body. Yeah. <laughs> Like, really, it doesn't have to be very big. No, most pools would. <laughs> most pools. I've been in some decent-sized bathtubs. Yeah, like like a hot tub. All right. So, like, a... Anything, a, anything bigger than a hot tub is... is or anything smaller than a hot tub is... Is, is no good. But, like, a, a, like a six-seater hot tub, you'd be cool sharing that with... How long have they been dead? And how did they die? Uh, it was murder, and you killed them three minutes ago. Yeah, probably. Okay. That seems it was murder, and the other person in the hot tub killed them three minutes ago. Mm, why did they kill them? Uh, you know what? <laughs> probably not cool with it. Disclaimer, I'm not cool with any of that. Don't kill people. Fair. We were ascending the dark stairs now. After tonight, however, things will be quite different. Do you know that I have sold the house? No. Why, you are full of astonishments, old chap. <laughs> <laughs> Found a better place with more space for your tear jars and tombstones? <laughs> he meant, I assumed, a witty reference to my collection of Coptic and Egyptian treasures, well and dearly bought, but so much trash to a man of Quentin's youth and, and temperament. Coptic? Um, tear jars? <laughs> Coptic, I'm guessing, refers to a civilization similar to ancient Egyptian, but let's find out. Coptic, the language of the Copts, which represent the final stage of ancient Egyptian. Okay. So, yes, Coptic and Egyptian Basically, is, Egyptian and late Egyptian. redundant. <laughs> cool. I opened the door to my wife's boudoir. It's, it's just a funny word. It is, and I love how much it's being used. Uh -huh. All right. I think it hasn't actually been used that much. I think I just keep repeating the lines. <laughs> <laughs> I opened the door to my wife's boudoir, and it was pleasant to pass into such rosy light and warmth out of the stern, dark cold of the hall. Yet it was an old house, full of unexpected drafts. Even here, 
there was a draft so strong that a heavy velour curtain at this far side of the room continually rippled and billowed out like a loose rose-colored sail. Never far enough, though, to show what was behind it. Uh-oh. That's probably not important. <laughs> probably not. I'm just thinking. I mean, based primarily on the title yeah. of the story. And the fact that there's a mummy in his house, also probably not important. Probably not important. Yeah. They're just red herrings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. My friend settled... <laughs> the title was a red herring. <laughs> kind of want to write that story now. Where it's just like, nothing happens. Yeah. But... It'd be like if uh, if Shakespeare had titled Titus Andronicus, nobody dies in this play. <laughs> <laughs> or family friendly. A tale of four cities. <laughs> Just want to keep them guessing on the oh, edge of their seat. Yeah. Once you've established what the first two are, you want to keep them engaged. Right, they're waiting for the... Waiting for the next two. Because yep. otherwise, like, why do you keep reading once you know what the two cities right. are? Uh, quick aside that can be deleted later if it's unimportant. Um, <laughs> all this can be deleted later, but it's not important. Um, one of my favorite uh, Third Rock from the Sun bits is at the start of one of the episodes. Dick is is like reading a book and he like opens the page and he's like, "It's the best of times. It was the worst of times." And he like looks looks at the back page and he's like, "Well, I'm not reading 375 pages if he can't make up his mind in the first damn sentence." And he tosses the book. <laughs> Brilliant. Anyhow. My friend settled himself on the frail little chair that stood before my wife's dressing table. It was the kind of chair that women love and most men loathe. But Quentin, for all his weight and stature, had a touch of the feminine about him, or perhaps of the feline. This is a homoerotic romance novel. And an anamorph. And an anamorphs! <laughs> <laughs> like a cat, he moved delicately. He was blonde and tall, with fine, regular features, a ready laugh, and the clean charm of youth about him. Also, it's occasional blundering candor. (laughs) Yep. As I looked at him sitting there, graceful at ease, I wished that his mind might have shared the litheness of his body. He could have understood me so much better. (laughs) Oh, he's pretty, but he's kind of dumb. I have indeed found a place for my collections, I observed seating myself nearby. In fact, with a single exception, the Tanazim sarcophagus, the entire lot is going to the dealers. Seeing his expression of astonishment, (laughs) seeing his expression of astonished disbelief, I continue. I mentioned this to Torin last week when we recorded. It is fascinating to me that every, uh, whether it be Heather or one of the guest hosts, everyone that I have recorded with at some point during the recording has found themselves stumbling over a word and then they do a scat solo to reset. (laughs) Yeah. It's the most natural thing in the world. Of astonishment. Mm-hmm. Scatman Jonah, I am. (laughs) Trouble reading, I have. Uh, I continued. The truth is, my dear Quentin, that Jay have... I have been guilty? I'm guessing I. Probably I. Yeah, all right. (laughs) Oftentimes, when uh, we get a lot of these stories off of um, 
like Word documents that have been transferred over from PDFs that were created by scanning the original document. And right. so sometimes there is punctuation that is like, nope, that was a that was a that was a speck on the paper. Right. And there are letters that are like, ooh, no, that did not transfer right. Cool. The truth is, my dear Quentin, that I have been guilty of gross injustice to our Beatrice. I have been too good a collector and too neglectful a husband. My tear jars and tombstones, in fact, have enjoyed an attention that might better have been elsewhere bestowed. Yes, Beatrice has left me alone, but the instant that some few last affairs are settled, I intend rejoining her. And you yourself are leaving. At least, none of us three will be left to miss the other's friendship. Well, that's creepy. What? The way he said that? Well, yeah. Maybe a little. <laughs> I'll be rejoining her, and you will be leaving, and no one will be left to miss the others. I'm sure it's fine. He sounds like a Bond villain! <laughs> <laughs> People just talked like that, right? That was normal? Yes, Craig. <laughs> Old chap. That is just how people talked. Yeah, just like... In, in, like, the late 1500s, everybody talked like they were in a Shakespeare play. They were always speaking in iambic pentameter. Yes. Good. Want to make sure. Tis true most verily, I say to thee. Yeah. You are quite surprising tonight, Santalos. But, by Jove, I'm not sorry to hear any of it. It's not my place to criticize, and B's not the sort to complain. But living here in this lonely old barn of a house... Doing all her own work, practically deserted by her friends, must have been hard. Very hard, I interrupted him softly. For one so young and lovely as our Beatrice. But if I have been blind, at least the awakening has come. You should have seen her face when she heard the news. It was wonderful. We were standing, just she and I, in the midst of my tear jars and tombstones. I feel like in the musical version of this, Tear Jars and Tombstones is like a big, is like, definitely a big tap number. And it probably, there's, there's at least one, uh, reprise. Oh yeah. Probably two. There's probably one that is a solo that, that is rewritten in like a minor mode. Mm -hmm. And then there's another one that is a duet and then maybe there's one that's like the the instrumental dance break in the middle of another song that isn't that song. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, they, they quote the melody yeah. during the dream ballet sequence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It just occurred to me, she didn't get sick and go on a cruise. She went, she got sick and moved. They're selling the house and all They're selling the house, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, it wasn't, <laughs> I need to go on vacation. It was... Let's leave and never come back. <laughs> I'm going on a cruise. When will you be back? Never. Nope. Do you think she knows she's on a cruise? <laughs> or do you think she got cruised? I don't know. Maybe she's in the sarcophagus. Or a teardrop. I would be disappointed if she is in the sarcophagus. Unless the sarcophagus is no longer there. Only because I always like it when characters technically speak the truth. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would, if she's in the sarcophagus, fine, so long as it's on a ship. Right. 
Although I suppose metaphorically, if she is in the sarcophagus and dead, she could be taking a cruise to the other side. Yeah, it'd be hard to work that in smoothly. Yeah. That's probably not what's going on. I don't think she's in the sarcophagus. Taking the ferry across the river Styx. Right. It was wonderful. We were standing, just she and I, in the midst of my tear jars and tombstones. My chamber of horrors, she named it. (laughs) You are so apt at amusing phrases, both of you. (laughs) We stood beside the great stone sarcophagus from the necropolis of Beni Hassan. Across the trestles beneath it lay the gilded inner case wherein Ta-Nazim, the, Osiri- the Osirian, had slept out so many centuries. You know its appearance? That wasn't a question. You know its appearance. <laughs> a thing of beautiful, gleaming lines, like the quaint, smiling image of a golden woman. For some reason, when you read it this last time, what I heard, and I know that you said Beni Hassan, but what I heard was the necropolis of Benihana. Mmm... <laughs> <laughs> It's much tastier. Then I lifted the lid and showed Beatrice that the one-time songstress, the handmaiden of Amen, slept there no more, and the case was empty. Interesting. You know, too, that Beatrice never liked my princess. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, God, it's going to get weird. (laughs) For a jest, she she used to declare that she was jealous, Jealous of a woman dead and ugly so many thousand years. Oh god, this is gonna get so weird. (laughs) Or, but that was only in anger, that I had bought Tanazim with what would have given- with what- (laughs) What would have given- Start the sentence over. Or, but that she was (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. Or- but that was only in anger, that I had bought Tanazim with what would have been... (laughs) These are not hard words. (sighs) It's okay, I will say Hooked on Phonics has worked pretty well so far. And you've even even come across words like chat, which don't phonetically make sense. All right. I think chain was in the second sentence. Mm Mm-hmm. Or, but that was only in anger, that I had bought Tanazim with what... <laughs> Jesus Christ. Struggle your way to the end and then take okay. it from the beginning. All right. Or, but that was only in anger, that I had bought Tanazim with what would have given her, Beatrice, all the pleasure she lacked in life. <laughs> oh, she was not too patient to reproach me, Quentin, but only in anger and hot blood. She got angry at his spending habits. And then yelled about, You love that dead lady more than me! Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, sounds like he learned. So I showed her the empty case, and I said, Beloved wife, never again need you be jealous of (laughs) Tanazim. Oh god. Oh god, it's gonna get so weird. (laughs) All that is in this room, save her and her belongings, I have sold. But her, I could not bear to sell. That which I love, no man else shall share or own. So I have destroyed her. (laughs) (laughs) All right. This guy seems really, really stable. Right? (laughs) 
I have rent her body to brown aromatic shreds. I have burned her. It is as if she had never been. And now, dearest of the dear, you shall take for your own all the care, all the keeping that heretofore I have lavished upon the princess of Nam. So he, so he was like taking better care of the the dead mummy than his wife. Yeah, or he just disposed of the mummy and he did shove her into the sarcophagus. <laughs> Beatrice turned from the empty case as if she could scarcely believe her hearing. Yeah, no shit. But when she saw the look in my eyes that I meant exactly what I said, neither more nor less, you should have seen her face. My dear Quentin, you should have seen her face. I can imagine, he laughed rather shortly. I don't think you can. I get the impression that you are not so bright. For some reason, my guest seemed increasingly ill at ease and glanced continually about the little rose and white room that was the one luxurious, thoroughly feminine corner, that and the cold, dark room behind the curtain, in what he had justly called my barn of a house. Santalos, he continued abruptly, and I thought rather rudely, <laughs> you should have a portrait done as you look tonight. You might have posed for one of those stern old hidalgos of which painter was it who did so many Spanish dons and donnesses? You perhaps mean Velasquez, I answered with mild courtesy though secretly and as always his crude personalities displeased me. <laughs> My father, you may recall, was of Cordova in southern Spain. But must you go so soon? Apparently he got up to leave. That would be context clues, yeah. Right. First drink one glass with me to our <clears throat> missing Beatrice. Our missing Beatrice. <sighs> words see how i was warming my blood against the wind that blows in even here the wine is um amontillado some kind of wine the wine is amontillado that's not a great sign what is amontillado there is a famous edgar Allan poe story called the cask of amontillado oh <laughs> perfect the wine is amontillado some that was sent me by a friend of my father's from the very vineyards where the grapes were grown and pressed. And for many years it has ripened since it came here. Before she went, Beatrice, Beatrice drank of it from one of these same glasses. True wine of Montala. See how it lives, like fire and amber with a glimmer of blood behind it. Dude, <sighs> man. He's not even being subtle. Like, he's he's hammering the, the subtext home pretty hard. Yep. You're gonna die. We miss Beatrice. Before she left, she drank this blood. Wine. <laughs> Wine with blood in it. <laughs> Behind it. I held high the decanter, and the light gleamed through it upon his face. Amontillado. Isn't that a kind of sherry? I'm no connoisseur of wines, as you know, but Amontillado. For a moment, he <laughs> for a moment he studied the wine I had given him, liquid flame in the crystal glass. Then his face cleared. I remember the association now. The cask of Amontillado. 
Ever read the story? <laughs> Dude, if you're putting that together, <laughs> you must needs run. I seem to recall it dimly. <laughs> Horrible, fascinating sort of a yarn. A fellow takes his trustful friend down into the cellars to sample some wine, traps him, and walls him up in... <laughs> Buries him alive, you understand. Read it when I was a youngster, and it made a deep impression. Partly, I think, because I couldn't for the life of me comprehend a nature, even an, even an Italian nature. <laughs> Desiring so horrible a form of vengeance. Can't imagine someone being that, that evil, even an Italian. Even <laughs> an Italian. Uh, okay, so, I mean... <laughs> It's 1918. Apparently, racism against Italians is okay. You're half Latin yourself, Santalos. <laughs> can you el elucidate? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I assume it means, can you elaborate? Elucidate. Make something clear. Explain. Okay, so, basically, I can't imagine someone being so terrible, even in Italian. Can you elaborate? You're Italian. <laughs> Response. I doubt if you would ever understand. I responded slowly. No, dude, leave. <laughs> Wondering how even Quentin could be so crude, so tactless. <laughs> Such a revenge might have its merits, since the offender would be a long time dying. But merely to kill seems to me so pitifully inadequate. Now I, if I were driven to revenge, should never be contented by killing. I should wish to follow. What, beyond the grave? I laughed. Why not? Wouldn't that be the very ap apotheosis of hatred? <sighs> Again. Apotheosis. Context clues. Uh, epitome? Yep. Apotheosis. The highest point in the development of something. Culmination or climax. Oh. Wouldn't that be the very apotheosis of hatred? I'm trying to interpret the Latin nature, so you ask me to do. <laughs> As you ask me to do. <laughs> Confound you, for an instant I thought you were serious. The way you said it made me actually shiver. Yes, I observed. <laughs> Or perhaps it was the draft. See, Quentin, how that curtain billows out. Oh, man, dude. His eyes followed my glance, continually the heavy rose-colored curtain that was hung before the door of my wife's bedroom bulged outward, shook and quivered like a bellying sail as draperies will with a wind behind them. His eyes strayed from the curtain, met mine, and fell again to the wine in his glass. Suddenly he drained it, not as would a man who was a judge of wines, but hastily, indifferently, without thought for its flavor or bouquet. I raised my glass in the toast he had forgotten. To our Beatrice, I said, and drained mine also, though with more appreciation. To Beatrice, of all course. Of, all of the clues are stacking up, my man. <laughs> 
all of the clues are stacking up. Beatrice drank this, and now she's gone. If I were going to kill someone, I would want to follow immediately after. And then you drank it, and then I drank it. Yep. <clears throat> follow the bouncing ball, man. You think this is going to end well? Yeah. Okay. I think Beatrice is going to walk in, and they're going to have a threesome. Yep. <laughs> Sounds great. To Beatrice, of course. He looked at the bottom of his empty glass, then, before I could offer to refill it, rose from his chair. I must go, old man. <laughs> when you write to B, tell her I'm sorry to have missed her. <laughs> Later, boomer, I'm out. Before she could receive a letter from me, I shall be with her, I hope. How cold the house is tonight, and the wind breathes everywhere. See how the curtain blows, Quentin. Like, really obsessed with that curtain. So it does. He, he set his glass on the tray beside the decanter. Upon first entering the room, he had been smiling, but now his straight, fine brows were drawn in a perpetual, troubled frown. His eyes looked here and there and would never meet mine, which were steady. There's a wind, he added, that blows along this wall. Curious. One can't notice any draft there, either. But it must blow there, and of course the curtain billows out. Yes, I said, of course it billows out. Or is there another door behind that curtain? I feel like... You're getting beaten over the head with the curtain? I feel like those people at the movie theater in a horror movie who are just going like, Don't go downstairs! It's a, Don't go downstairs! Right. You the he old man said don't go in the basement, and he was weird and only had one eye. But he knew your name. Why are you going in the basement? And he laughed creepily when he said it. Yeah. The little kid who worked at the gas station. <sighs> yeah. His careful ignorance of what any fool might infer from mere appearance brought an involuntary smile to my lips. <laughs> Nevertheless, I answered him. Yes, of course there is a door. An open door. His frown deepened. My true and simple replies appeared to cause him a certain irritation. As I feel now, I added, even to cross the room would be an effort. I am tired and weak tonight. And I just poisoned both of us. It didn't, <laughs> it didn't say that. I was ad-libbing. That was, that was the subtext. We don't do improvisation <laughs> on this podcast. Sorry. Craig. I apologize. It won't happen again. I am tired and weak tonight. As Beatrice once said, my strength beside yours is as a child's to that of a grown man. Won't you close that door for me, dear friend? That's a weird thing to say. <laughs> Why, yes, I will. <laughs> Don't. I didn't know you were ill. If that's the case, you shouldn't be alone in this empty house. Shall I stay with you for a while? <laughs> As he spoke, he walked across the room. His hand was on the curtain, but before it could be drawn aside, my voice checked him. Quentin, I said, are even you quite strong enough to close that door? This dude says such creepy, cryptic shit. I, I kind of hope nothing is wrong. I kind of, I, I really hope he's just a weird, creepy dude. <laughs> it's just all psychological. <laughs> yeah. Looking back at me, 
chin on shoulder, his face appeared scarcely familiar, so drawn was it in lines of bewilderment and half-suspicion. What do you mean? You are very odd tonight. Is the door so heavy, then? What door is it? I made no reply. As if against their owner's will, his eyes fled from mine. He turned and hastily pushed aside the heavy drapery. Behind it, my wife's bedroom lay dark and cold, with windows open to the invading winds. And erect in the doorway, uncovered, stood an ancient gilded coffin case. That's where I keep mine. It was the golden casket of Tanazim, but its occupant was more beautiful than the poor shriveled songstress of Nan. Bound across her bosom were the strange, quaint jewels which had been found in the sarcophagus. Tanazim's amulets, heads of Hathor and Horus, the sacred eye, the Eroius. I got nothing on that. That's a whole lot of vowels. Yeah. The internet appears to have nothing on that either. Ah, there we go. Just spelled wrong. If it is spelled with an A instead of an O, Uraeus, a representation of a sacred serpent as an emblem of supreme power, worn on the headdress of ancient Egyptian deities and sovereigns. Perfect. Snake crown. Snake crown, yes. Oh, yeah, it's the snake part of... Oh, got it, got it. ...of the, like, the headdress on King Tut. Yep. Cool. Uh, heads of Hathor and Horus, the sacred eye, the Uraeus. Uraeus. Even the heavy, dull green scarab, the amulet for purity of heart. There they rested upon the bosom of her who had been mistress of my house, now Beatrice the Osirian. Beneath them, her white, stiff body was enwrapped in the same crackling, dry, brown linen bands, impregnated with the gums and resins of embalmers dead these many thousands thousand years, which had been about the body of Tanazim. It got weird. Yeah. <laughs> Above the white translucence of her brow appeared the winged disc, emblem of Ra. The twining golden bodies of its supporting Uraei, Uraei, plural of Uraeus. Yeah, presumably. <laughs> its cobras of Egypt <laughs> were lost in the dusk of her hair, whose soft fineness yet lived and would live so much longer than the flesh of any of us three. Yes, I had kept my word and given to Beatrice all that had been Tanazim's even to the sarcophagus itself, for in my will it was written that she be placed in it for final burial. Like the fool he was, Quinton stood there, staring at the unclosed, frozen eyes of my Beatrice, and his. We still don't know what Quinton did. Right. I mean, she was sick. Maybe, maybe she just died. That seems unlikely. It seems unlikely. I'm trying to give... I'm... That seems unlikely. Oh, wait, what no. Quinton, Quinton's the friend. Quinton's the friend, right. yes. Sorry. We still don't know what Quinton did. What do you mean? Our narrator, um, Solanus, or Santaris, or Sant whatever the Santalos, hell. I think. Santalos, that's it. Um, has poisoned Quinton. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like he poisoned his wife Presumably. and himself. Uh-huh. 
presumably. We still don't know what Quentin did. What is he taking revenge for? Oh, right, right, right. Leaving? Well, except his friend isn't moving. He's moving. No, his friend's moving to Chicago. That's why. It came oh, over. yeah, that's right. That's mm -hmm. right. Hey, quick, before you go, could you drink this bottle of bleach? <laughs> <sighs> All right. Like the fool he was, Quentin stood there, staring at the unclosed, frozen eyes of my Beatrice and his. I don't understand what that means. That's what Quentin did. Of my Beatrice and his. And his. Of my Beatrice and his. Got it. His Beatrice. There was something weird earlier on in how... He was disappointed Beatrice wasn't going to be there. Yeah. Okay. Stood till that which had been in the wine began to make itself felt. He faced me then, but with so absurd and childish a look of surprise that, despite the courtesy due a guest, I laughed and laughed. <laughs> like, I know it's rude, but it was funny. I, too, felt warning throws, but to me the pain was no more than a gauge, a measure of his suffering stimulus to point the phrases in which I told him all I knew and had guessed of him and Beatrice, and thus drive home the jest. But I had never thought that a man of Quentin's youth and strength could die so easily. Beatrice, frail though she was, had taken longer to die. He could not even cross the room to stop my laughter, but at the first step stumbled, fell, and in very little and in a very little while lay at the foot of the gilded case. After all, he was not so strong as I. Beatrice had seen. Her still cold eyes saw all. How he lay there, his fine, lithe body contorted, worthless for any use, till its substance should have been cast again in the melting pot of dissolution. While I, who had drunk of the same draft, suffered the same pangs, yet stood and found breath for mockery. So I poured myself another glass of that good Cordovan wine, and I raised it to both of them and drained it, laughing. Quentin, I cried, you asked what door, though your thought was that you had passed that way before, and feared that I guessed your knowledge. But there are doors and doors, dear, charming friend, and one that is heavier than any other. Close it if you can. Close it now in my face, who otherwise will follow even whither you have gone. The heavy, heavy door of the Osiris, keeper of the house of death. Thus I dreamed of doing, a, doing and speaking. Th thus I dreamed of doing and speaking? Apparently. It was so vivid, the dream, that awakening in the darkness of my room, I could scarcely believe that it had been other than reality. Aww. <laughs> I woke up and it was all a dream. <sighs> True. I lived. While in my dream, I had shared the avenging poison. Yet my veins were still hot with the keen passion of triumph, and my eyes filled with the vision of Beatrice, dead, dead in Tanazim's casket. Unreasonably frightened, I sprang from bed, flung on a dressing gown, and hurried out. Down the hallway I sped, 
swiftly and silently. At the end of it, unlocked heavy doors with a tremulous hand, switched on lights, lights, and more lights, till the great room of my collection was ablaze with them. And as my treasures sprang into view, I sighed, like a man reaching home from a perilous journey. The dream was a lie. The part of the dream that he was scared about was that he had gotten rid of all his shit. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> there, fronting me, stood the heavy, empty sarcophagus. There, on the trestles before it, lay the gilded case, a thing of beautiful, gleaming lines, like the smiling image of a golden woman. I stole across the room and softly, very softly, lifted the upper half of the beautiful lid peering within. The dream indeed was a lie. Happy as a comforted child, I went to my room again. Across the hall, the door of my wife's boudoir stood partly open. In the room beyond, a faint light was burning, and I could see the rose-colored curtain sway slightly in a draft from some open window. Yesterday, she had come to me and asked for her freedom. I had refused, knowing to whom she would turn, and hating him for his youth, and his crudeness and his secret scorn of me. But had I done well? They were children, those two, and despite my dream, I was certain that their foolish, youthful ideals had kept them from actual sin against my honor. But what if, time passing, they might change? Or, Quentin gone, my lovely Beatrice might favor another, young as he and not so scrupulous. Everyone, they say, has a streak of incipient madness. I recalled the frenzied act to which my dream jealousy had driven me. Perhaps it was a warning, the dream. What if my father's jealous blood should someday betray me, drive me to the insane destruction of her I held most dear and sacred, not Beatrice? To not be clear. Yeah, to be clear, <laughs> we're talking about the already dead woman. I shuddered, then smiled at the swaying curtain. Beatrice was too beautiful for safety. She should have her freedom. Let her mate with Ralph Quinton, or whom she would. Tanazim must rest secure in her gilded house of death. My brown, perfect, shriveled princess of the Nile. Destroyed, rent to brown, aromatic shreds. Burned, destroyed, and her beautiful coffin case desecrated as I had seen it in my vision. Again, I shuddered, smiled, and shook my head sadly at the swaying, rosy curtain. You are too lovely, Beatrice, I said, and my father was a Spaniard. <laughs> you shall have your freedom. I entered my room and lay down to sleep again, at peace and content. The dream, thank God, was a lie. <laughs> the end. Woo! That was a ride. That was weird. <laughs> that was a very strange ending. Yeah. Listener, I don't know if you can hear, but there is a very unhappy baby downstairs. And I, for one, completely understand. I hate it when the twist ending is it was all a dream. Right? That's awful. Although I wonder if this was an original ending when she wrote it. Yeah, it might, I mean, it's become kind of a kind of a cliche. But, yeah. But it might not have been. Certainly. Bad. I think certainly. But, like, regardless, his reaction to it being a dream was pretty creepy oh well he's still <laughs> messed up yeah he's a d wicked twisted dude mm -hmm. um yeah 
I think it's a four-person musical. The the dead princess, the dead wife, and the two friends? And the two guys, yeah. yeah. I think it's a four-person musical. Okay. Um, yeah, we can do that. And I think I think uh, Tanazim has, uh, like, her entire backstory is fleshed out, and, like, the other three play whatever minor minor roles in servants like... servants in her court in the flashback yeah yeah maybe it's just a ballet behind the curtain the ballet uh-huh. whether musical or ballet lots of dancing lots of oh definitely lots of dancing yeah lots of dancing and nothing the set is made entirely of jars full of tears <laughs> and it can't even just be jars full of water right you need to have an entire team of interns whose job it is to cry into jars yeah that seems uh problematic <laughs> what do you think listener did you enjoy that one yeah it was really good that, i rarely get such immediate feedback that's <laughs> it's really nice to hear i'm so glad you enjoyed it if you were to become an anamorph what animal would you change into inquiring minds want to know <laughs> uh any other thoughts on this one um I liked it. I mean, like, I, you know, issues with the whole it's a dream ending. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know. I, good good writing. Yeah. Well I, done. It's, it's well written. I would yeah. like, I want to read more, more of her stuff. Apparently, she has, uh, she has one book that is um, thought to be at least one of the first dystopian future novels that takes place in, like, Philadelphia in 2180. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. Uh-huh. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, listeners, as you know, the way I like to end these episodes is by giving a sort of secret passcode so that people who have made it this far in the episode can reach out and email or message us. Uh, you can email us at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com. 5050artsproduction company is the umbrella company that produces this podcast. Uh, and on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, we're on all of those things, and you just find us by looking for Campfire Classics. Uh, but yeah, shoot us a message, and somewhere in either the body of the message or as the um, subject of the email, I forgot that word for a minute, subject, it was difficult, uh, or as the subject of the email, send us the secret passcode, which this week is Pregnant Sloth. <laughs> Perfect. Parting thoughts? Nope. Alright. Uh, so thank you, Hooked on Phonics, for sponsoring this week's episode of Campfire Classics. You're really doing good work out there. And until next week, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf.